Amen. Is the gospel good news today? It's a question I ask myself a lot. Some weeks ago, I was um, getting ready to, to do a class that I sometimes do here at this church called Gospel Fluency, and, and it's, really, it's really all about that. It's, it's how do we speak the gospel, how do we speak it clearly, how do we speak it effectively, and I was prepping for this. I was out on a walk around my neighborhood, and I was walking down a street, and I saw a house, and there was um, like a ready-ride van, like a kind of a taxi for people that have handicapped um, things. It was parked in front of the house, and I was just walking by. And there was nothing, you know, spectacular about this moment. It was just, it was just a moment of, of real clarity where I was watching this lady who was probably 50 or so, who was completely immobilized in her, her wheelchair. I was watching her be lowered out. Um, by this employee who she'd paid to, to take her wherever she needed to go to bring her back. And she was getting lowered in the gate, ready to go inside her house. And, and I was just overcome with this question. Is the gospel good news for her? Is the God, and, and of course I know it's good news for her sin. It's good news for her eternally. It's good news for the fact that she'll get a new body someday, yes. But just was seized by this question. Is it, is it good news for her now? Like if I were to walk up to that lady, maybe I should have, and, and said, hey, can I share news with you? These good news of something that's happened and something that's happening. Could I say, here's the good news about your situation, that you are living alone, that you can't walk, that you have to pay this service to come take you to the store. Is there good news for that? Is, is God doing things now in, in the world or is it all just future? That's one of the questions I constantly am sort of wrestling with. You know, we love stories where things fall apart and then we get to watch the things get put back together. You know the stories. Uh, we love the Christmas Carol story. We love Groundhog Day. Anybody? Groundhog Day? You know, where Bill, Mar Bill Murray's just a total jerk. And, uh, and, and then he has to relive the same day over and over again. And eventually, you know, his life starts to be renewed. It starts to change and he starts to be put back together. We love these kinds of stories, and we don't just love redemption stories. We love renewal stories. We love seeing someone's life get put back together. It's the last 10 minutes of the movie. It's the part I actually usually turn off, and my wife's like, what? That's my favorite part of the movie, you know? Everything gets put back together. We like these things because they resonate with our human experience. We want to be put back together, don't we? We want to be whole. We want to be made new. We want to be renewed. And, and the question is, is the gospel really a story about us being made new now? Or is it all just sort of pie in the sky, future, exciting things that might happen later or will happen later, right? And Christians often wrestle with that tension. Sometimes uh, they don't really talk at all about how God can make you new right now and God can change you right now and, and work in your life right now. It's all future. Sometimes they overemphasize it. They overemphasize healing now. Everything can be now, heaven now, right? The Bible, though, clearly has something to say about new life in the midst of this life. And that's what I want to talk about with you guys for the next two weeks. New life in the midst of this life. What does it look like to be made new now, in this life right now? I want to talk about this for, for two weeks. And today, we're going to talk about a particular area that, that is tense in our culture, a particular area that makes people cringe and squirm in our culture, but it's something that needs to be discussed. And that is, how is God renewing our relationship with our own bodies? How is God renewing our relationship with our own physicality, these things that we live in, and how should we think about our bodies in light of God's word? Here's my goal for this series. Two things I'm hoping for you to get out of this. 
Number one, I'm hoping that you will be more excited to be a Christian right now. That your Christian life wouldn't just be, I got to suffer now so I can have pleasure later in heaven. No, that your Christian life would be a joy now. That you would see how God is working in your life now. I want you to see that. And secondly, my hope would be that you would be more confident in the gospel's ability to change people now. That you would walk through Grant's Pass and you would see the homelessness and you would see the addiction and you would see the brokenness and you would see the police sirens going by and the ambulances going by and you would go, the gospel's the answer to this. Not just political things, not just social action. No, the gospel, what happened at Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, is the answer to our problems. Do we really believe that? Do we see people that are living in homelessness, living in drug addiction, living in poverty, living in adultery, living in all of these, these, these sinful, broken uh, cells, do we look at them and go, the gospel is what they need? Or do we look at them and go, mm, I don't know how to fix this. Okay, the gospel's what, that's what, that's what I want. I want to give you confidence on how to think about some of these broken issues that we see in our culture. I want to look at them head on. I want to say, what are we dealing with right now in our culture? And how is the gospel good news now for that? Now, to do that, you're going to have to bear with me. We're going to get to Colossians chapter 3, but I'm going to do a really long introduction to get there. So I'm just warning you ahead of time. And I'm going to have you in your Bibles a lot, flipping and looking at a lot of different passages. What I want to unpack for you this morning is so paradigm shifting. It's so paradigm shifting, uh, and, and I want you to get it. So we're going to talk first about life. Okay, what I want to do, the outline is I want to see God's plan for restoring life, and then I want to show how that affects us in real life, okay? So life is what we're going to talk about for just a minute here. Life is God's most precious gift, isn't it? It's God's most precious gift, and it is also humanity's greatest loss. It's the greatest thing we were ever given, and it's the most... It's really the greatest thing we've ever lost. We lost it in the garden, this, this life. Now, um, we are still living, but we are all dying, aren't we? Did you feel that this morning? <laughs> yeah. I woke up at five this morning, and I was like, I'm dying. <laughs> and then I had coffee, and resurrection came. There. <laughs> life originates within God himself. Did you know that? It originates within God himself. It was God's idea. God created life. God started life. Life wasn't an accident. It wasn't from primordial soup and billions of years that just happened to work together. Life flows out of God himself, the Godhead himself. He is the source of life. Life began when God's mind was manifested in God's decree. Think about that. Life began when God's mind was manifested in God's decree. God had an idea. He spoke it, and it became something. That's life. He started it. Now, the, the New Testament, this is important, note this. The New Testament uses three Greek words to describe life. I'm going to give them to you, maybe write them down. The first Greek word to describe life in the New Testament is bios. Bios, this is where we get our term biology. This is the physical life, the natural world. This refers to living organisms. The natural world that we all live within. Your biology, your body, your body is bios. This is what the Greeks used and the New Testament authors used to describe that. The second word is psychos, in which we get psychology, right? 
This is the, the mind life, the psychological life. This is our emotions, maybe even our soul. So the Greeks, rightly, they understood that there was some dichotomy, some binary between our bodies and our minds. But there's a third word that the New Testament authors use, and they use it very carefully, very uniquely, and very interestingly. And I want to introduce you to that word. It's going to change the way that you read your Bibles. And when you read your Bible, uh, if you have some good, uh, hopefully, if you have some good, um, you know, resources that you can use, like a Greek help or, or an app or something on your phone, you can look down and see which word is used to translate life. So the third word is zoe. Can you say zoe? Zoe, okay? Zoe life. What is Zoe life? It's not bios. It's not the, the physical body. It's not psychos. It's not the mind. Zoe is the uncreated life. Zoe is God's life. It's eternal life. It is the divine life. The best way that I can explain to you what Zoe is, is exactly the way God chose to illustrate himself to Moses in the burning bush. Do you remember this? Moses did not know God yet, and God had really not revealed that much about himself yet to his people. He'd revealed some of himself to Abraham, but Moses was going to get to know the covenant name of God. He was going to get to know God in a way that no one had yet. And the way God introduces himself to Moses first is in this burning bush. What's significant about the burning bush? is that the fire in the bush is not consuming the bush. Do you see that? Not only is it purity, the fire pictures purity, but the fire itself is picturing the fact that God is uncreated life. He does not need to consume life to be life. Everything in this world, everything in our bios needs to consume life to be life, right? I need calories to live, many of them, more than 2,000. Okay, we need, we need things to consume. Fire itself, by nature, fire consumes what it is burning. It takes oxygen and all of those different things. Plant life, all of this, it, it takes sun, it takes water, it takes soil, it takes nutrients. Everything takes something. Why? Because we're talking about creation. Created things. Created things have needs. Tozer said that need is a creature word. Creatures have need. God has no need because God is life itself. Are you with me? He's the Zoe life. He is the burning bush. And it's at this point, no, mis no mistake, that God introduces himself to Moses as the what? I am. I am that I am, Moses. I am that I am. What does that mean? It means he's the uncategorizable one, the indescribable one. It means no created thing can contain or explain him. He is. He is his own category. He needs nothing. He looks to nothing. He is self-sustaining life. So we have psychos, we have bios, we have zoe. God gave man in the garden. He gave them bios, our bodies. He gave us psychos, our minds, our thoughts, our souls. And in the garden, originally, he imported zoe into that garden. I believe it was pictured in this thing called the tree of life. You notice there was two trees in the garden? Tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. These two trees formed a decision for Adam, our father, our first progenitor of humanity, our representative, our executive figurehead. Adam had two choices. He had the tree of life, God's Zoe life. He had the tree of death, the knowledge of good and evil. 
God presented this option, choose life, choose death. The same option that was presented to the Israelites in the Old Testament and the book of Leviticus, choose life, God's way, choose death, the world's way. This dichotomy was given. So in the garden, the Zoe life of God dwelt amongst humanity. The two were together in harmony. There was no need for a temple because the garden was a temple, right? The garden was a place where God would physically walk in the cool of the garden with his people. There was no separation between him and his people. But what happened? Man chose poorly. If you remember the Indiana Jones, choose but choose wisely. Come on, anybody? Indiana Jones? Yes. Okay, sorry. Okay. Indiana, choose wisely. It's, it's, come on, Spielberg. No, it's not Spielberg. It's uh, George Lucas. Okay. No, it's Spielberg. Okay. Man chose poorly, to my point. Because man chose poorly, what happened? God removed the Zoe life from the garden. In fact, he moved, removed man from the garden. And what did he do? He set up angels to guard man from getting in the garden so that they could not get to the tree of life. From this point forward, what do we experience? We experience dust without the Zoe life. That's you and I, we're dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. We are, because the Zoe life has been removed from this world, we now live in a cursed and fallen world that is ultimately dust. Romans says, and we'll talk about this again in a moment, Romans says that it was, uh, that creation, and yes, you are part of that, was subjected to futility. Here's a better word, because I don't use futility a lot. Frustration. Creation was subjected to frustration. Anyone feel frustrated about their bodies right now? I'm going to feel frustrated about the world, the creation. It's been subject. This is what Romans teaches us. It teaches us that this world is jacked, and you're part of it. Okay? The Zoe life has been removed. The question that we should ask as good gospel practitioners is how can God bring the Zoe life back into the world? How can he do this? And here's where I need you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We'll get to Colossians, but just follow me here on a rabbit trail. John chapter 1. I want you to see John's gospel, how it answers this question. John chapter 1, verse 1. You're familiar with this, probably. John opens up his gospel message by saying, in the beginning. What beginning, by the way? The beginning of Jesus' life? Or the beginning of all created things? All created things. In the beginning was the word. Who is the word? Good job. The word was with God and the word was a God, right? What did I do? He was God. Thank you, Trudy. The word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is God. He is the creator. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses change this. We know this. Their New World Translation, watch for this. They, they insert uh, that, that letter A, God. Um, but we know he was God. He is God. He was with God. He was the word. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus is Zoe life, right? Are you with me? He was in the beginning with God, verse 2. All things, not some things, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Could John be more clear here? Was anything made without Jesus? No. 
Verse 4. Now this is where I want you to focus. In him, that is Jesus, was Zoe. And the Zoe was the light of men. Now we skip down to verse 14. We've seen that Jesus is the Zoe, and here's what verse 14 says. This is so profound. If you can get your head around this, verse 14, and the word, that is Jesus, became flesh. He became by us and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So here's what's happening here. The Zoe has been taken from the bios and the psychos. And God's plan of salvation is to restore his Zoe life back into the created order. How does he do that? He sends the Zoe into the world. Where is it? It's in Christ. He is the Zoe life among us. The Zoe, you could say it this way. The Zoe put on the bios and the psychos and dwelt among us. The life of God, the burning bush, the I am himself has put on humanity, not relinquished his divinity, but added his humanity and brought the Zoe life back into the world for the first time since Genesis 3. John 10, just flip a few pages over. John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and destroy and kill. I, Jesus says, came that they may have what? Zoe, life. Why did Jesus come? He came to restore life. And not just life, what does he say? And have it abundantly. Isn't that good news? Everything else in this world takes. It takes life. It destroys life. It ruins life. Jesus here is not just talking about the devil and the enemy. He's talking about national Israel. He's talking about the the Pharisees who were supposed to be shepherds of Israel. And instead, they, they they were fleecing the sheep. Jesus says, all other masters in this world are looking to take your life. I am looking to restore it. So Jesus came to restore it. Now, one more place, John 4. What am I kidding? Not one more. Another place, John 4, 14. John 4, 14. Meet me there. I'll start reading. This, you know this scene. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, right? She's a Samaritan woman. She's from the north. And they're getting in this conversation about where are we going to worship? Where's God's presence going to manifest? Is it going to be on the hill in the north or is it going to be in Jerusalem? Because there was this divide ethnically between northern and southern Israel. And the Assyrians were, were basically racial half-breeds, right? So this woman is stunned that Jesus is even talking to her. And it's within this place that Jesus calls this woman about, out about her adulterous and illustrious life. She's had husband after after husband, after husband, he calls her out on it. She knows he's a prophet. And Jesus says this in John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. What kind of water is this? It's Zoe water. It's water that comes from a spring that cannot run dry. He says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up 
So you got to see this. Jesus is telling this woman that this Zoe life, it's not just going to be around you. It's going to be inside of you, and it's going to pour out of you. That's the Christian life. The Christian life is the Zoe doesn't just come into the world. The Zoe comes into the world, and then it comes inside of you, and then it bursts out of you. And I want you to catch this. We'll become in him a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. When we say those words, when we read those words, we think Jesus is talking about a amount of time. He's not. He's not saying less than that. Jesus isn't saying that if you drink my water, then you'll have a really long life. What is he saying? He's saying, if you drink my living water, you will have an eternal-sized life. Do <laughs> you see that? It's not just chronology that Jesus is saying here. He is saying chronology. He's saying, yes, you'll live forever. You won't die. But he's also saying, when he says eternal life, he's talking about the scope of life, the size of life that will be in you and will be coming out of you. Eternal life doesn't just mean forever life. It means eternal-sized life. Question, when does eternal life start for the believer? When you get saved. Eternal-sized life is in you now. Your eternal life has begun if you are in Christ. This is good news. So the question now is, how does the Zoe life come into this world through Jesus? Because Jesus, yes, he was the Zoe life, and yes, he walked around in this dead bios, right? But the reality is, is that he only really discipled 12 guys, right? And even those 12 guys um, only ministered to so many people. So how does Jesus restore the Zoe life back into creation? We learn about this in John chapter 11. Why don't you go there? John chapter 11. Are you guys following me? Are we good? John chapter 11, this is where Jesus famously has a discussion with Martha and Mary because their brother, Jesus' good friend, Lazarus, died. And Jesus purposely stayed back for four days and let him die. Not very Jesus-y thing to do, right? And Mary and Martha are heated about it, understandably, and they're being respectful. But they each come to Jesus one at a time and they want to understand, why did you let my brother die? If you had come, you could have stopped it. And Jesus gives us another little nugget of how the Zoe comes into this bios in his exclamation with Martha, or his exchange with Martha. Chapter 11, 24, Martha said to him, Jesus just said that, that he, you know, that he could raise him or whatever. And she's like, I know that he will raise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see where Martha's brain is? She's got a theology of resurrection. Her theology of resurrection is eschatological. That means it's at the end of all things. She goes, yeah, I understand that my brother's going to raise in the end, and I'm going to raise, and we're going to have a relationship in the future. And Jesus is sitting here thinking, oh, Martha... You don't understand. You're thinking later. Jesus is like, I'm thinking now. What does he say to her? What does he say to her? He says, I am, I could preach a whole sermon on those two words. <laughs> Remember the I am, the burning bush? I am, in other words, I am the source of life. I'm the Zoe life. I created life. I invented life. I spoke life. I made life. It's me. I am the resurrection and the Zoe. Do you see that? Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to resurrect. He doesn't say, I can resurrect people. What does he say? I am the resurrection 
and the life. Now, when he says resurrection here, we think bringing someone back from the dead, but what he really is saying here is not so much resurrection as he is saying regeneration. What is regeneration? Think new Genesis. New Genesis. Jesus is saying, not only am I the source of life, I'm going to Genesis life again. Me, he says, me. You just need me, Martha. You just see me. I, I, I am the source of life. I, and so what do we learn here about how Jesus is going to bring Zoe back into the world? We learn he's going to do it through what? Resurrection. That's how he's going to do it. Flip over to John 12, 23. John 12, 23. This is another interesting scene where some Greeks come up. They want to see Jesus. Jesus is hours from going to the cross. He seems like he kind of ghosts them. He has no interest in, in sitting down with them at this point. And rather, he goes into this diatribe about the importance of his resurrection to the, to the disciples. So here's what he says in John 12, 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man, that's his favorite name for himself, to be glorified. Truly, truly, which means listen. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What are you talking about, Jesus? You're talking about grain falling into the ground and dying fruit? What do you mean? These Greeks just wanted to come see you, and now you're talking about fruit and dying in the seed. What is Jesus talking about? He's saying there's going to come a time for the Gentiles. There's going to come a time where all humanity will have an opportunity to reconnect to the life of God, but the only way Zoe can come back into this life is if I go into the ground. Who's the seed? He's the seed. He's speaking of his death. He's speaking of the importance of his death and his burial and his resurrection. And not just his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his sending of the Spirit. And that that whole thing, that's called the gospel, that whole thing right there will start a new Genesis life that you and I will be grafted into. Read John 15. Jesus said, I am the what? Vine. You are the branches. In other words, I'm the Zoe. And you're just by us. But when you're connected to me, my eternal life comes back in you and through you. Guys, this is just the gospel. Isn't it cool? Aren't you glad you're a Christian? <laughs> this is incredible. I mean, this is the message that Jesus came to bring for us. We become, through the resurrection, we become enmeshed with the Zoe life of God. Now, here's the good news. Jesus could have just come and atoned a spiritual atonement for a spiritual life. He could have said, forget created stuff. Let's go to heaven and float. That's not what he did. What did he do? Jesus forever enmeshed physical and immaterial together in one. How? In his body. Jesus took his humanity with him when he went to heaven. And for that reason, Jesus proved that he was not only restoring us eternally in our souls, our psychos, he's restoring us eternally in our bodies. Jesus came to save you and your body, believe it or not. He's going to give you a better one, 2.0, better looking, jump higher, less aches and pains. But he came to save a physical universe to restore the spiritual and the physical that are at odds right now back together as one. And he does it in his resurrection. That is why he is the God-man. 
Did you connect that? Now, Colossians 3. <laughs> okay, that's my introduction to Colossians 3. Jesus unpacked some of these big concepts for us, um, in, but the, the, the apostles really double-clicked on them. The apostles really brought us into a deeper understanding of them. And, and so with that as a backdrop, I want you to look at Colossians 3 briefly, and then I'm going to get into a more pointed conversation about something we need to talk about in our culture. Okay, so Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what Paul has to say about these things. He says, if then... You have been raised with Christ. Now, when you're doing your devotions in the morning, you just read right past a sentence like that, like whatever, that's confusing Paul speak. I don't know what he's talking about. Stop and think about it, okay? Paul just said that you, Christian, have been, past tense, have been raised with Christ. What is he talking about? Have you been raised? I mean, were you there when Jesus came out of the tomb? Has he come back and resurrected you already? What does he mean? How is it that this has happened? What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that if you're a Christian, you somehow were there, not only on the cross with Christ, receiving his death, receiving his atonement, but you were there enmeshed, fused with his resurrection. To be a Christian is to have been resurrected with Christ. We are seated with him in heavenly places. I don't know how that works, but it works. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. When he says seek the things that are above, he doesn't mean don't think about earthly things. What does he mean? He means tune into the things that God wants you to think about. It means submit yourself to his rule. It doesn't mean hate your body and don't work and walk around hitting yourself in the head with a board or move to some monastic community and shave the top of your head like a monk That's certainly not what he means. The monastics completely misunderstood this dichotomy between spiritual and physical. See, they thought, oh, to be spiritual is to be immaterial. It means I need to just sort of float in my brain. But Jesus didn't come to save the spiritual universe only. He came to save the spiritual and the physical universe. When Paul says to seek the things that are above, he means seek the things that God is seeking. Do the things that God is doing. Tune into the things that God is working in. Surrender yourself and all your faculties to what he is up to. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Verse three, for you have died. Now there's another weird Paul thing to say. I have died? What does he mean? I'm still alive. Did I die? Did no one tell me? Is this the sixth sense? Am I Bruce Willis? <laughs> you, got, you got that one, right? You got, okay. Just, these movie lines, I, I gotta quit. Okay. Bruce Willis doesn't know he's dead till the end of the movie. He's like, oh, I'm dead. I didn't realize it. Okay. What, does Paul, what does Paul mean? How have I died? How have I died in Christ? Well, again, we somehow... When we became part of Jesus, we were there with him at the cross. We were fused to his death on the cross. And here it is, guys. Don't miss it. Verse 3. For you have died and your what? Which is? Zoe. Your Zoe. It's mine now. (laughs) Do you see that? It's subtle. Don't miss it. See, the gospel was that the Zoe came into the world. But now what has happened? The Zoe is now in me. That's the Christian reality, that the Zoe life through Christ by his spirit is now in you. Paul says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your Zoe, 
appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The Zoe now is taking up residency within us. That's really cool. What do we do with it? Well, verse five, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Again, he's not talking about physicality. He's talking about immorality. He's talking about the things that don't honor the next world that you've already been brought into. You already belong to a citizen of this new world. Now, put to death everything that doesn't exist in this new world. This new created reality that Jesus has started with his resurrection. He gives a list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now, this is not Paul saying, just stop sinning. That's not what the Bible says. This is not Paul saying, stop sinning because God said. It says, stop sinning because you're dead. Do you catch that? It's not saying, stop sinning because God said. It's saying, stop sinning because you're dead. You're dead to what? You're dead to that. You don't live in that world anymore. That's not who you are anymore. You've been born again into a new world that is absent of wickedness, absent of holiness or unholiness. That's Pauline theology. That's New Testament theology. It's act like who you are. Act like who you are. Stop acting who you're not. When a Christian sins, a Christian is convicted. Why? Because a Christian is not a sinner by nature anymore. So when we sin, it's a failure to believe that we are who we are in Christ. See? That's why we have conviction as Christians. And here's the whole point I want to get to, verse 10. Zone in here. And have put on the new self. That's who you are now in Christ, in his resurrection, which is, notice it, present tense, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So will we get a new body? Yes. Is God preparing an eternal place for us? Yes. Is Jesus going to come back and make a new heavens and a new earth? Yes. But listen, church, tune in. You now, now, right now, in this moment, in this place, in this season of your life are being renewed. Now. Now. Isn't that cool? What does that mean? What does that look like to be renewed? Well, he actually says right there in verse 10, he says, in knowledge. Isn't that interesting that Paul goes to the mind? Same thing he says in Romans 12 too, that you are transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. The way that you're renewed in this life is primarily not through your body, but through your thinking about your body. Isn't that interesting? God's changing the way you think. He's changing the way you process. He's changing the way you view this world. And how is he changing it? Look at verse 10. He's changing it in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's Jesus. You're being transformed, changed into the likeness of Christ. Because when he comes, we will what? Be like him. That's the Christian experience. You are becoming more and more like Christ. Thinking his thoughts. Thinking the way he thinks. Sam, so what? That was a whole lot of theology. Yeah, that's, that's theology is the study of God. So that's important, okay? But I'm bringing this to a point. Why, why did I say all that? Why does all that matter? Here's what I want to talk about in my last 10 minutes, okay? We live in a world that has an unhealthy and a toxic view of our own physicality. Have you noticed that? We live in a world that sees our bodies 
wrongly. And we know why, don't we? Romans 8.20, I already read it to you. For creation was subjected to frustration. We are all subjected to the reality of frustration. You guys feel that when you look in the mirror? <laughs> I'm frustrated with that. Man, futility. And we all laugh, but it's the reality, isn't it? I mean, we, we've built an entire economy on trying to find ways to cope with our discomfort in our own bodies. Our frustration, our Yeah, I'm going to use the word, our dysphoria in our own bodies. We all, as humans, we feel that to some degree. And Romans tells us why. As Christians, we have the answer. We know why we're frustrated with our bodies. We know we're frustrated with this world. It's been cursed. It's broken. It's not as it should be. Our bodies can be both a source of joy and a source of shame, can't they? They can be a place of freedom and a place of frustration. We are all in this state of discomfort, I want to read some statistics for you that won't surprise you, but probably are a good reminder of what this looks like. 17%, and this is all U.S.-based, 17% of all people in our country will self-harm during their lifetime. And the primary way that that is done is through cutting. Um, self-harm, that's, that's to, to, to mutilate one's body in one way because you're so broken it's so sad that, that somehow perhaps hurting your own body would bring joy or relief. Maybe that's, that's what they're thinking, right? 17%. How, how sad is that? Mostly this happens within teens, teen girls. The average age of the first incident of self-harm is 13. We have 13-year-olds in our world that are so discontent, discomforted, frustrated with their bodies that, that they want to harm them. 45% of people using, that use cutting as their method of self-injury, so, so just under half of all self-harm is cutting. Gay and bisexual people are at a high risk of self-injury. Now, this was really sad and hard to read. Nearly half of all bisexual females engage in self-injury. Half. Half. Engage in self-injury. Goes from 17% to half. 12.2 million people seriously consider suicide in 2020. 12.2. 3.2 million people in our country made a plan to commit suicide. 1.2 million people attempted to take their own lives. Over 2 million Americans undergo or underwent uh, in one year, unnecessary cosmetic surgery. So I'm not talking about a necessary cosmetic surgery after, a, after something that happened to you uh, or whatever, after a mastectomy or something like that. I'm talking about unnecessary cosmetic surgery, mostly facelifts and boob jobs. That's, there's millions and millions of dollars in our, in our economy. Why? Because, because women in particular are frustrated with their bodies. Just over 5 million people in the U.S. believe they were born in the wrong gendered body. 5 million people. I'm not here to laugh at these people. I'm here because I'm concerned about these. And these are our youth. 9% of the U.S., that is 28 million 
people have eating disorders. Seven, you are seven times more likely to have an eating disorder if you are part of the LGBTQ culture or movement. Seven times more likely. Particularly gay men struggle with eating disorders. They have this pressure to stay thin. This is the world that we live in. It's a world of frustration. It's a world that we can all relate with to some degree, can't we? It's a world where, where we have to daily live in this reality that, that, that we sometimes are frustrated, oftentimes are frustrated with our physicality and not sure how to think about it, not sure how to fix it, not sure how to renew it. What does that look like? I was thinking back this week, um, and I, I mentioned this song as a joke a couple weeks ago, but this is certainly not a joke. Um, my eighth grade life was spent listening to the band called Linkin Park, and this is what the lyrics were, and I would literally fall asleep listening to the song over and over again. And the song I'm going to read the lyrics for led to multiple suicides of multiple teens because listening to this was so dark and depressing. Yet when you read it, you go, actually, this is just putting words to what so many are feeling. Here's the words. Crawling in my skin, these wounds, they will not heal. Fear is how I fail, confusing what is real. There's something inside me that pulls beneath the surface, consuming, confusing. This lack of self-control I fear is never-ending, controlling, can't seem to find myself again. My walls are closing in. Without a sense of confidence, I'm convinced that there's just too much pressure to take. I've felt this way before. So insecure, against my will, I stand beside my own reflection. It's haunting how I can't seem to find myself again, crawling in my skin. This is how all of my friends felt in eighth grade. And we would sit and we would listen to this song, staring at the wall, hating our own life, yet being told by the world that it was within our own life that we would find true joy. My best friend growing up would sit in his room that was painted black, listening to this, cutting his arms. I would walk into his room. He wouldn't even acknowledge my existence. He was so depressed. What's happening here? I'll tell you, it's not a secret. We're living in a world that is subject to frustration. What's the answer, though? Is the answer psychos? Is the answer bios? That's what the community we live in is telling us right now. You need to alter yourself physically to change your problems. If you are a boy and you feel like a girl, then you just need to change your bios to fit your psychos. No. You need Zoe. You need real life, real identity. You need to know that you are loved and that your body, though it's frustrating, it's going to be redeemed. It's going to be renewed. God has a purpose for it. Every pain, every struggle, God's doing something. You are made in the image of God. The problem is not that we don't love our bodies it's that we don't love our bodies enough. We don't love them the way God said. We don't see the value in our physicality anymore. We need a deeper identity. A deeper identity than male, female. 
We need a deeper identity. This is what Paul goes on to say. Look at it. This is what Paul says in verse 10 in Colossians 3. He says, I've put on the new self, which is being renewed, and the knowledge after the image of its creator. Listen, here there is not Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What Paul is not doing here is he's not removing, removing the gender. He's not removing their ethnicity. He's not removing their class. He's saying all of that is insignificant. You need a deeper identity than those things. What our world is saying is that your truest identity is black, white, male, female, gay, trans, queer. No, Christ is the true identity. Guys, do you believe this is the answer that our culture needs? Do you believe that the teens that are cutting themselves and taking hormone blockers, can we pray for them? Don't mock them. Don't get snarky on Facebook. Pray for them. Weep for them. They've been lied to. They've been told a false gospel that if they go under the knife, that perhaps they can find themselves. And they don't believe and realize that Jesus went under the knife for them so that they don't have to cut themselves and harm themselves and wound themselves. Transgender is not a new thing. It's part of a much bigger category of self-harm. It's part of a much bigger category that says that my soul and my body are somehow out of alignment. That is to some degree true of every human. But the answer is the Zoe life. The answer is Christ. We're putting children in cages and telling them that the key to get out is inside the cage, and it's not. Can you think of anything more cruel? We're telling kids that within them is true reality. We're saying within you is your truest self. Look inside you. What are you? Who are you? What do you want to do? And, and we're saying that's the key, and it's not. It's not the key. The key's outside the cage. How cruel for the world to say that. The gospel is that the truth, the key, came in to the cage and is freeing us from the inside out by making us new creatures with new identities and changing the way that we think about our bios and our psychos to be in line with God's eternal Zoe plan. Isn't that great? That's the gospel. That's what our culture needs. So don't get caught up in the political culture wars. Speak the truth and speak it with a tear in your eye, please. I'm speaking to myself. This is not going to be a thing that happens somewhere in Portland anymore. This is a thing that's happening in our lives. And shame on us if we do not love these people as they struggle with their sin while we struggle with our sin. Because we're all struggling with our sin. We all have brokenness and we have all believed false gospels and we need the true gospel to come in and to change that. God wants to affect us now. He wants us to see his ability to change us now, and he wants us to have more confidence in the gospel to transform and to change. I want you guys, when you see this happening in our culture, I want you to remember the word zoe, and I want you to go, they need zoe. They need the gospel. They need a better identity, a truer version of self.
They need to be told that they are precious in the sight of God. No matter what they have done, they bear his image. No matter how much mutilation, no matter how much pain, they still bear the image of God. They still have intrinsic eternal value and they can have newness of life in Christ. His spirit can come live within them. They can be adopted. I've got a four-year-old girl living in my house right now. She's a foster kid. And she latched onto this idea that she has got three daddies. One is her daddy that she's not able to live with. One is me. And one is Jesus. And she reads these books and she goes, that's my daddy. And of course, my, my other daughter, my daddy too. No, my daddy. And I'm like, I'm okay with that. My mom has a sticker on the back of her car. It says favorite. She, she literally will tell you. She's like, I'm God's favorite. She's not, a, she's not a bash. That's the kind of love that we have to offer to people that have been rejected, that have believed a false gospel. You have a father in heaven, and he sent his only son. I want to read and just close with this quote. Nancy Piercy, who wrote a book uh, called Love Thy Body. There's a quote from it. Uh, she said, we live in a moral wasteland where human beings are desperately seeking answers to hard questions about life and sexuality. But there is hope in the wasteland. We can cultivate a garden. Listen to this. Tune in. We can discover a reality-based morality that expresses a positive, life-affirming view of the human person. One that is more inspiring, more appealing, and more liberating than the secular worldview. Do you have better news than the world? Do you have a better message than let's go cut your body and change it? Do you have a better message? Yes, you do. You do. We should be oases, gardens in a wasteland. We're in Babylon. We're in Babylon now. And the way that we win this culture war is not by screaming on Facebook. It's by preaching the gospel in a kind and loving way and making disciples and unpacking these truths, amen? And that's what we're committed to at this church. And that is why our, our, our tagline as a church is transforming lives with the gospel. Transforming, that's what, that's what we're doing. That's what we're here. So if you're new and if you're visiting today, that's what we're here to do. We do it through discipleship. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much that there is such good news in you, Lord. Thank you so much, Jesus, for being that seed that went into the ground and died, but did not stay there, turn into a fruitful vine in which we are now the branches. Thank you, Lord, that we get to abide in you. God, I pray Lord, I pray for everyone in our community that has believed a false gospel, that thinks that by harming themselves or changing their physicality or hurting or wounding their body, that somehow that's going to free them from their cage. Lord, I pray that you would send us with the gospel and that they would hear it. Father, use this church. We have the good news. Make us gospelers in a broken and dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.